Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to this sermon from Hope Church here in Las Vegas, Nevada. I pray that the preaching and teaching of this ministry has built your faith in Christ, inspired you to abide in him, and equipped you as a Jesus follower, no matter where you're tuning in from. If you would say that you have benefited from the ministry here at Hope, we would love to invite you to partner with us by joining in our year-end offering called This Is Hope. Our goal is to raise $250,000 that will go towards meeting specific needs in Las Vegas, the West, and the world. So if you've enjoyed the blessings of this video or podcast resource, would you prayerfully consider making a gift to our This Is Hope offering? If it's on your heart to do so and the Spirit is leading you, you can go to hopechurchlv.com give for all the details about the specific needs we are seeking to meet through this offering. And thank you in advance for your generosity. Now let's jump into our December sermon series, The King Has Come. Amen. Well, good morning, Hope Church. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to Romans chapter 3. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. But while you're turning there, one of the things that we do in the Dorner household is we have family Christmas movie night. Anybody else have family Christmas movie night? Anybody in here? Yes, some of you. Uh, I, I'm realizing as each service goes on, there are not a lot of people like me. Uh, not many families actually do this. So if you are one of those families that does family Christmas music or movie night, God bless you. you you're my people. So we were doing that the other night, me and my wife and, and my two boys, and we decided to watch, in my opinion, my favorite and best Christmas movie of all time. I might be in the minority, but my favorite Christmas movie of all time is The Grinch. <laughs> the Grinch. I love The Grinch. Now, the classic, the original, oh my goodness, it's unbelievable. That's the one that we watched the other night. It's, it's such a classic. I absolutely love it. Gives me all the feels. But my favorite Christmas movie is the Jim Carrey one. I love it. I think he is so funny. He is so hilarious. His antics, some of his lines. If you wanted me to, if you gave me enough money, I could quote the entire movie for you right now. I love it. But I love that movie for a lot of reasons. But I think the main reason I love that movie is because of this. It is a great movie about redemption. It's a redemption movie. I mean, if you know the movie at all, you know that the Grinch has a heart that's two sizes too small, and he's kind of hopeless and helpless, and he hates Christmas, but eventually by the end of the movie, his heart has grown, and he has love for everybody, and it's just a Merry Christmas. It's awesome. It's a redemption story, and we love all sorts of movies like that, all kind of re redemption movies, but the question that I want to ask this morning is why? Why do we love movies like that? And I think we love them because they touch a deep part of who we are as human beings. I think deep down in every single one of us, there's a desire and a yearning to be a part of a great redemption story. I think all of us can look at the world and look at ourselves and notice that something has gone wrong. We are helpless and in need of change, and we long for this kind of redemption. And this morning, Hope Church, I just want to remind you 
that what we're longing for in that redemption is not something that we don't get to enjoy and live in. You and I, if we are followers of Jesus in here this morning, are a part of the greatest redemption story of all time. The redemption of our souls because of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest redemption story of all time. And the reason we love those movies is because all great redemption movies find their meaning and significance and are pointing to the great redemption story, the story of Jesus. And for the past couple weeks, we have been studying this redemption story. Two weeks ago, Pastor Scott talked about this reality that the king has come as promised. He's come exactly as he was foretold in the scriptures. And then last week, Pastor Brian Loritz came and he talked about this reality that the king has come with good news of great joy and that he is a unique savior and there is nobody like our king. And this week, what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time talking about a reality that many of us don't often like talking about it because it just makes us feel kind of crummy. And I want to put it up on the screen. The reason for all this good news that we've been talking about for the past couple weeks is because Jesus has overcome the bad news. You see, we have such great news at Christmas, but for us to really feel the weight and enjoy all that the good news has for us, we've got to understand and feel the significance of the bad news, of our reality. And that begs the question, what is the bad news? Well, the Apostle Paul, in our text this morning, he tells us the bad news. Listen to how he talks about it in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, for all, it's every single one of us, all have sinned. This word sin, it's the word for to miss the mark. It's the image of, of a, a target out in the distance and a, and a bow being shot and us missing the target. We're not hitting the bullseye with our lives and therefore we all fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. The bad news is that because of this sin that all of us have, all of us have been separated from enjoying a personal relationship with God. All of us, no matter our background, no matter our story, no matter our past, our present, or our future, all of us are sinners and need of a Savior. And to make the bad news just a little bit worse, we can't do anything in and of ourselves to fix our problem. It doesn't matter how many times we go to the doctor. It doesn't matter how many books we read. It doesn't matter how much we medicate ourselves. All of us have a disease called sin that you and I are incapable of curing ourselves of. This is the bad news. But this morning, I don't want to spend all our time talking about the bad news. I want us to rejoice in the really, really good news of Christmas this morning. Listen to how Paul talks about this good news in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Listen to what he tells his young protege, Timothy. Here's what he says. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So whatever follows this, Paul is saying, listen, you can trust this. You can believe this, accept this, get it in your heart, get it in your guts. And here's the good news, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
Friends, this is the good news of Christmas, that Jesus has come in the flesh, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that you and I deserve to die because of our sin, and is alive and ruling and reigning today as the king over all the universe. But the way he has chosen to save us is through his death. This is the way it had to be. God did not send our king here without reason. He sent our King Jesus with a mission, with a mission to accomplish. And the accomplishment of that mission came when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And I know what you may be thinking. There's a tendency in all of us at this kind of Christmas season to be thinking, Pastor, I know this. I understand that Jesus has come into the world to save sinners and I've been following Jesus for a long time. But I'm walking into this building this morning with sin struggles. Can you give me something that's going to help me with my sin struggles? I know Jesus died for my sins, and I know that his gospel affects me for eternity, but I need something that's going to help me now in the present. You're walking in here with anxiety or depression or sadness or loneliness, and you're walking in going, I I get that, that's great, I'm thankful that the gospel saved me for all eternity, but pastor, I need something that's going to help me now in my present. And if you're feeling that way this morning, I just want to encourage you, I know exactly what you're feeling. See, for me, when I gave my life to Jesus, initially upon salvation, I was filled with a kind of gratitude that I had never had for anything else in my life. I was filled with a, with a love for Jesus that surpassed everything in my life. And it was, it was like growth early on in my relationship with Jesus was just easy. It was up and to the right. It was smooth. It was awesome. But how many of you know that over the course of time, that, that emotion initially upon conversion, it starts to fade with some time. Some trials start to hit, some difficulties arise, and that initial emotion upon conversion, it starts to die out a little bit. And so, motivated by a really good desire to continue to grow, I was like, okay, so what do I need to do? I'm really thankful that Jesus in his gospel saved me for all eternity, but now I've got some sin stuff that I really want to try to beat and overcome. So, I started looking for all the best tricks, some other advice, some some helpful tips that could help me overcome all the things that I was feeling on a daily basis as my emotion waned. And it was motivated by a good desire, but I'm convinced now after following Jesus for some years that it was a grave, grave mistake for me to assume that the gospel of Jesus only affected my eternity but didn't affect me in the right here and now. Listen to how one author named Dane Ortland talks about this reality in his book, Deeper. I highly, highly recommend this book, Deeper. It was probably my favorite this past year. He says this, It's common in some quarters of the church to think that the message of the gospel initiates us into the Christian life, and then we move on to other strategies when it comes to growing in Christ. This is a fundamental mistake. We will never grow truly as long as we retain this error. Listen to this. I love what he's about to do for us. Here's what he says. The gospel is not a hotel to pass through, but a home to live in. He goes on to say, it's not only a gateway into the Christian life, but the pathway of the Christian life. Not jumper cables to get the Christian life started, but an engine to keep the Christian life going. So here's the point. 
As followers of Jesus, we never, ever, ever move on from the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We never move on from the gospel because it's not as we move on from the gospel that we grow in our relationship with Jesus. It's that as we move deeper into the gospel that we grow in our relationship with Jesus. And that's what we want to do this morning. So whether you've been a Christian for years or you've been just checking this whole church thing out, the best thing for every single one of us in this life is to stare at the beauty and the glory of Jesus on the cross. Because as we do that, it will produce in us a kind of joy and a kind of springboard into our growth in Jesus that nothing else ever could. Paul himself said in Galatians chapter 2, this is how he lives his life. Listen to this in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, he's going to tell us the key, the key to growing in our relationships with Jesus. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, a lot of us fall into the trap of believing that faith in the gospel is only the way we initiate ourselves into a Christian life. But what Paul's saying is the same way that you began in Jesus is the same way you continue in Jesus, by placing your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 3 Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 22, we're going to read this passage, this beautiful, theologically packed passage. And as we read it, we're going to pull out three achievements, three achievements, three things that Jesus accomplishes for us on the cross. And as we stare at them and as we sit in them, what I'm praying happens for every single one of us is a kind of joy springs into our heart that no, nothing in this world could ever touch. And then as we finish our service, what we're going to do is together as a church family, Pastor Scott's going to come up, and as a way of us remembering what Jesus has done for us, we're going to partake in taking the Lord's Supper together. So, does that sound like a plan? All right, here we go. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 22. Here's what God's word says. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. From this passage, I want to pull out three achievements, three things that Jesus accomplished for us in his death and resurrection as a way of hoping to spring forward joy in our hearts that nothing else in this world could ever give us. Paul here uses three key words, three theological words that we're going to study this morning, the first achievement, the first thing that Jesus died to give us is, number one, he died to declare us righteous. He died to declare us righteous. In verse 24, it says that we are justified, justified by his grace as a 
gift. What does this word justification, justified, mean? Well, for sake of time, here's a definition of justification. Justification is when a sinner is declared righteous before God by God. That's very important. Before God by God. You see this justification, what all of us need in this life is to be righteous. But the problem is, we're not. (laughs) It's what every single one of us need. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This word justification, it is a legal term. It's painting the picture of a courtroom where there is a holy and righteous judge sitting at the judge's seat And he's looking at us, and the verdict is in. Before Jesus, the verdict is clear. We are guilty. We're guilty. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of gospel. There's no debating it. There's no getting around it. The verdict for us is in. We're guilty. But that begs the question, how then does a holy and righteous and perfect God have a relationship with sinful humanity? This is the answer, this is the question that the scriptures are answering. And the answer for how a holy God can have a relationship with a guilty sinner is Jesus. That's how. Jesus, because Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die because of our sin, and rose again from the grave, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And it's because of him and him alone that you and I could ever enjoy a relationship with God. And if we would trust in Jesus, what the scripture says is in that moment, you and I, we're justified. We are declared righteous in God's sight. This is the beauty of the gospel. Have you ever heard the story of a man who who purchased what has been called the the unbreakable car? Ever heard this story? Heard this story a couple years ago. A man found a a promotional something, and, and the promotion was, we have made the car that never breaks. (laughs) That'd be pretty nice. Anybody ever have some car problems? I've had a lot. The car that never, ever breaks down. Well, this man, he was interested. He wanted the car that never broke down. And so he ended up purchasing this car. And in purchasing this car, they delivered the car to his house. This was before Carvana, right? And uh, they deliver the car to his house, and he starts to drive it. And wouldn't you know it, for a week, it was awesome. For two weeks, it was great. A few weeks go on, and wouldn't you know it, the car breaks down. (laughs) The car breaks down. And he's like, wait a minute, this was supposed to be the car that never broke down. Did I just get gypped? And yeah, you kind of did. But so he calls up the manufacturer. He says, hey guys, I'm on the side of the highway. My car just broke down. It seems like the engine has, has blown. What, what do I do? And they say, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. We're going we're gonna to get out there as soon as we can and we're going to fix your car. Well, he's, he's waiting on the side of the highway with his, his broken down car, and he noticed that over the course of the mountains, over, the, over those mountains, uh, comes a helicopter with his car. <laughs> but not that car, another car. And, and this helicopter comes, drops this new car down, and they take away the broken one. Now, he's grateful, he's excited, he's thankful, and so he drives off his car. He drives away. He goes home, and he's expecting like you would, for a bill to come in the mail because he's got to pay for the broken car. 
And so he waits a week and, and no bill comes. He waits another week and no bill comes. And eventually he's really confused because he's willing to pay the, the bill. He's, he's got enough money to do that. And so eventually he just was like, you know what, I'm just going to call the manufacturer and ask him about it. And so he picks up the phone, calls the manufacturer. He says, hey, uh, my name is Mr. So-and-so. And my car broke down. You guys brought me a new one by helicopter. It was pretty crazy. And I just want to see, I need to pay the bill on it. So, okay, well, let me check the records. And so the guy goes and checks the records. And it was as he was checking the records, he ends up saying back to him, he said, Mr. So-and-so, um, we actually have no record of your car ever being broken down. He's like, what do you mean? He said, yeah, we, we have zero record of your car ever being broken down. You don't have to pay a cent. Everything's been taken care of. Have a good day. Friends, this is the beauty of justification. See, we have a bill to pay for our sin. And yet Jesus, on our behalf, has stepped in, paid the bill in full. And now when God looks at us, as we relate to him, we don't relate to him needing to pay our bill anymore. He says, son, daughter, it's been paid in full. You are righteous. We have no record of anything ever going wrong with you. This is the beauty of Jesus. This is what he's done for us. And friends, when we get this in our depths, it should produce in us a kind of joy and a kind of gratefulness that nothing else ever could. This is what Jesus has bought for us. You know why I love justification? Here's why I love justification. Because every other religion in the world, every other religion in the world says this, that if you do enough good things, then maybe when the verdict is time to be given, maybe you've done enough good things for your, your pronouncement to be not guilty and good enough. But see, friends, here's the beauty of Christianity. Every other religion says that your performance will lead to the verdict. Only in Christianity does the verdict lead to the performance. See, Jesus has done for us what nobody else could, what we ourselves couldn't do, and when we get that deep into our guts, it changes the way we live. This is what Jesus bought for us. He bought our justification. But number two, he died to set us free. Paul uses this word in verse 24. He uses the word redemption. That we have redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, for sake of time, here's the definition. Redemption is God's freeing of sinners from the devastating effects of sin. You see, theologians and scholars talk about when New Testament authors use this word redemption, in the back of their mind, they have the image of the story of the book of Exodus. If you don't remember that story, I want to encourage you, go back, read the book of Exodus one day. You'll, you'll find that God's people, Israel, were enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. They were completely enslaved, and God's plan was to send a man named Moses, and that through Moses, he would free his people from slavery. He would, in some sense, redeem them, buy them back from their slavery. This is the idea of redemption. Did you know that when the Bible speaks of human beings before they have a relationship to Jesus, that the Bible speaks of you and I 
being enslaved to sin. That in some weird way, in the same way that the people of Israel were slaves to Egypt, that they didn't have a choice, that they didn't have freedom, that they had to do what their master said, we too, before Jesus, were enslaved to our sin. We didn't have freedom. We didn't have the choice. We had to do what our master told us to do, and that master was sin. And so when God here, through Paul, uses this word redemption, the image is that God is breaking us free from the enslavement of sin. So that you and I, when it comes to our daily relationship with Jesus, now as followers of Jesus with the Spirit of God living inside of us, here's the good news. We can now say no to what we always used to say yes to. That's that sin that, uh, that used to enslave us and trap us and keep us in chains, now through the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, we can say no to those things and yes to the things of God. Listen to how 1 John puts it. Here's how he writes it. He says, I write these things to you, my dear children, that you may not sin. This was not our reality before Jesus. Now, because of Jesus, we've got the freedom to say no to what used to enslave us. So if you're here this morning and you're struggling in your sin, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you with the words of Paul from Romans chapter 6. Here's what he tells us to do. Romans chapter 6 says this. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And here's what he tells us to do for those of us who are in Christ. So you also must consider yourselves. Consider yourselves. Remind yourself. Tell yourself the truth that what? That you are dead to sin and alive to God. Paul is reminding us strugglers. To remember the gospel, that when Jesus died for you, he died to break you from the chains of your enslavement to sin. You are dead to that, and now you have been made alive to God. You can say no to that addiction that you've been fighting for years. You may need some help, but hear me, through the power of God's spirit, you have the ability to say no to what you always used to say yes to. That habitual sin that you've brought in here, listen, it does not have power over you. Jesus defeated that sin on the cross. You and I just have to remind ourselves consistently we can say no to that and step into the life that Jesus has for us. This is what he bought for us on the cross. He bought our redemption. But number three, he's bought our justification. He's bought our redemption. But number three, Jesus died to protect us from the wrath of God. Now, we don't like talking about this. We don't like talking about this, and I understand that, but Paul here in verse 25, he uses a word we never ever use. He says this, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, here's a definition. Propitiation is God's way of averting the wrath of God away from sinners. The Bible is clear that because of our sin, all of us, all of us, it doesn't matter who you are, all of us are under a curse, the curse of the law. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. The just payment that all of us deserve for our sin is death. 
And the reason for that being the payment is because when we've sinned, we have sinned ultimately against the almighty creator God who is eternal in every single way. And because our God is eternal, our sin demands an eternal punishment. And this is the wrath of God that we deserve. But if you're anything like me, we don't like this idea of God's wrath because if we're being honest, we don't think our sin is just that big of a deal. See, if you're anything like me, you kind of have two categories for sin. (laughs) You've got small sins that kind of don't really affect anybody that are kind of just between you and God, and it's just kind of like, if it hurts anybody, it hurts you, but it's, it's really, it's just a small sin. It's, it's something that's just between me and God, and then there's the big sins, right? And the big sins are the sins that affect other people, <laughs> that change lives and affect people's lives in a very negative way, and so we've got little sins and we've got big sins, and we can understand there being a severe punishment for big sins, but not really if we're being honest for our small sins. And if that's how we're thinking, we're not understanding that ultimately when we sin, it's not just a sin against our brothers and sisters. Ultimately, our sin is always an affront on the glory of Almighty God. Listen to how Pastor John Piper describes it. He says, the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We glorify what we enjoy most, and it isn't God. Therefore, sin is not small because it's not against a small sovereign. The seriousness of an insult rises with the dignity of the one insulted. The creator of the universe is infinitely worthy of respect and admiration and loyalty. Therefore, failure to love him is not trivial, it's treason. It defames God and destroys human happiness. And because our God is holy, and because our God is just and righteous, he cannot forever just simply sweep our sin under the rug. Because if all he ever did was sweep our sin under the rug, he would not be holy, righteous, and just. But because he is, there has to be a payment for the sin. And here's where, friends, I just, I just get so blown away by the grace of God. Because God knows, God knows that he's going to have to deal with sin. That there has to be a payment made. He cannot just sweep it under the rug. He knows it's got to be dealt with. But here's the beauty. He's so loving that he's willing to deal with it himself. He can't just sweep it under the rug. He's got to deal with it, otherwise he wouldn't be righteous. And the way God has chosen to deal with our sin, to protect us from the wrath of God, is to send his son Jesus to hang on a cross, to be bloodied and beaten and tortured, and to have his blood spilled on our behalf. And in that moment, hanging on the cross, Jesus was absorbing, absorbing the full wrath of God for everyone, everyone who would ever believe in Jesus. So that because Because of Jesus, you and I, as followers of Jesus, we are no longer under the condemnation of God. We can say with Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that we know that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus, Jesus, Jesus absorbed all of the wrath of God on our behalf. 
And when we get this, this frees us from fear. This should free us from fear. When we understand, when we combine justification, redemption, and propitiation, we are righteous before God. We are free from from the power of sin in our life. And we are safe from the wrath of God. When we get this into the depths of our being, we become untouchable as followers of Jesus. So what we've done today is just simply stared at and marveled at the wonder of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. And one of the ways that Jesus gave his early disciples, the early church, a way to remember and orient our hearts around what we've just talked about is through a symbol called the Lord's Supper. And we're going to finish our service by remembering the Lord's death as we partake in communion together as a church family. Does that sound good? So let's pray together as Pastor Scott comes. Lord Jesus, thank you. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you, God, that because of all of your accomplishments, Jesus, the way we receive these things is by faith. By faith in you, all of these things become true of us. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here, maybe those who've never done that, maybe who've never placed their faith in Jesus. God, I pray that they would do that today. God, I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper and remember your your death, your body being broken, your blood being spilled, God, I pray that, that we would do it in a way that honors you. Thank you for giving us this practice. We love you, Lord. We thank you for what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we praise God for a strong message from God's word today? Well, just as Pastor Trenton said, we are going to take some time now to remember through a symbol that Jesus gave us called the Lord's Supper or communion. See, when he was getting ready to do exactly what we just talked about, go to the cross for our sins, he gathered his disciples and he took some bread and took some wine and he showed them that they he was going to suffer for them and he used these two elements as a picture of his body and his blood and all throughout church history it has been something that followers of jesus now use to remember a symbol to remember all that jesus has achieved for us on the cross and in first corinthians chapter 11 paul the apostle when he's instructing the church there in corinth about what it means to follow Jesus. He includes how to take the Lord's Supper or communion. I want to show you a few verses here before we take the Lord's Supper. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, 23, it says this, for I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and we had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice in verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat and drink. See, there's no prescription in the New Testament on how often we should take the Lord's Supper. 
Some maybe come from a church where you do it every single week. It doesn't give us a prescription on how often to do it. It just says as often as you do it, here's how you do it. And for us here at Hope Church, for 21 years now, we have had the conviction that we want to take the entire service as we have today to do exactly what we have done, to stare at the cross of Jesus Christ, to really sit and remember truly what he has accomplished for us on the cross. And now we come to a place in our service where we, in just a moment, are going to pass out these, these little cups. <laughs> they, on one side, have a, a little wafer that represents the bread and the cup represents the juice or it represents the blood. And in just a moment, we're going to have a time to sit and to examine. That's what, that's what the word of God tells us to do before we take the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a few verses down from what we just read, Paul says, let the person examine himself. Then so as to eat the bread and drink the cup. You see, the, the bread represents the broken body of Jesus Christ. It's the incredible doctrine of the incarnation that we celebrate here at Christmas. That God became a man and dwelt among us. That God in the flesh bore our sins on the cross. That's what the bread represents. The juice represents the blood that was shed for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God, 1 Corinthians says. This is what we celebrate as we remember the Lord's death. But it tells us to examine. We don't want to just rush into the Lord's Supper and tack it on the end of a service. We are told in Scripture to examine. And I just want to be really clear. If you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, we praise God that you are here. But what we're about to do is not for you because it is a symbol for us as followers of Jesus of what Jesus did for us and what we've accepted as him as our Savior. If you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, I, I invite you just to abstain from the elements as they go past you because it's not going to do anything for you. <laughs> It's not going to give you good luck this week. It's not going to accomplish anything for you. It's not going to cover any sin that you have had this last week. In fact, it, it, it points to the only one that can actually do that, which is Jesus. So you don't need a ceremony. You need a Savior, and he stands ready today to save you from your sins. So maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. We would invite you to meet Jesus, to experience life change, all the things that we talked about today, and then come to the table as a, gra as a grateful sinner who remembers their Savior. But for us as followers of Jesus, we want to take a few moments to examine. I want to encourage you as you get these elements to just sit for a moment and just think about your life. Examine your relationship with Jesus, your fellowship with Jesus, and Maybe for you, you would examine some things that you know and that aren't right in your life, that don't honor God in your life. This would be a moment to remember the justification and the redemption you have in Christ and the propitiation which with he saved you. Maybe today you just need to sit with these elements and preach the gospel to yourself again that says no matter what you walked in this week, it's paid for on the cross. 
No matter what you're in right now, it has been fully justified and fully redeemed. And God does not stand with wrath over you because that was poured out on Jesus. So we examine. Maybe you repent and say, God, I've, I've been away from you for a while. Bible also talks about taking this in an unworthy manner if we don't have, if we're not in right relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. See, we try to remind you here all the time that a relationship with Jesus is not just a vertical thing. It also impacts a horizontal relationships. So for years here, we've have encouraged you. If you know you have something that's not right with a brother or sister in Christ, would you make it right before you partake of the Lord's Supper? It's that big a deal to be in unity with brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's what's about to happen. We are going to, the band's going to come and lead a song while the ushers hand out these elements. And I have to say this because I didn't say this the first service and it got kind of messy. These are kind of new cups. So you have to flip it over. The the bread is on the top. If you open up the other way, it it will go back. (laughs) We're going to hand out the elements as we sing. And I'm encouraging us not to stand and sing in this moment, not to necessarily worship right now, but to just sit and remember and examine and just have some time with the Lord as we sing over you. And then after we sing one song, I'm going to come back up and like Jesus did with his disciples, I'm going to lead us in the Lord's Supper, the taking of the bread and the taking of the juice. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. Our band's going to come, lead a song. We're going to sit. We're going to examine. We're going to remember And then I'll come back and lead us as we take in the Lord's Supper. Jesus, thank you for this practice. Thank you for this powerful symbol that points to all the things that we just saw in your word are so true and so good and so for right now in our lives as followers of Christ. Pray as people have conversations with you all over this room right now, Lord, you would rule and reign and direct our hearts towards you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers, you can go ahead and pass out the elements.